Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. The show was presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investment. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel. And we're talking today about how to avoid family disputes involving inheritances and wealth. As you may know, our law firm is participating in charitable giving in celebration of our 25th anniversary. So before we start the show, we want to thank our employees for giving to some wonderful charity so far this year, including Create Your Dreams, ALS, Association of the Georgia Chapter, uh, Street Smart Youth Project, Hero Box, and Hillside Hospital. Now let's introduce our desk. Adam and I are pleased to have two new partners at Gastelwich Frankel, and they are Millie Bombush and Robert Port. Millie is a Brown University graduate and a star at Georgia State University, and she came to our firm right out of law school. I'm sure she has regrets. Uh, Robert is a double Tar Heel, which I find attractive. And he came to our practice after a long practice doing securities plaintiff's work, which fits dovetails beautifully to our practice as we deal with fiduciaries and management of estates. So let's hear a little bit about each of you. Robert? Thank you, Craig. Um, as Craig said, I'm a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill. I, after that, I clerked for a uh, federal district court judge in North Carolina and then came to Atlanta and met Adam on the day we each took the bar exam because we both started at the same firm and we've been friends since then. Our paths have crossed numerous times and I'm uh, very pleased and honored that both uh, Adam and Craig would have me join them. Um, as Craig said, my uh, plaintiff securities practice I think uh, complements the uh, fiduciary practice that Adam and Craig have so uh, fully developed because it deals with uh, issues regarding money management, investment, risk, uh, diversification, and other issues that often arise when evaluating how a fiduciary, a trustee, or other person charged with managing or dealing with someone else's money and assets uh, has behaved. So I'm very pleased to uh, be part of the firm. Millie? Good morning, Adam and Craig and Robert. Um, thank you for making me a partner in this firm. I'm very pleased to be here as well. I took a slightly different route um, after graduating from Brown, as Craig mentioned. I worked in New York City at some money center banks doing middle market lending, um, mostly to the garment industry. So I had a great wardrobe in those years. Um, I you went still on do. Thank you so much. I went on to do um, strategic planning and market research um, and then had children and for a while was a market research consultant. But for many years, I was PTA mom extraordinaire. Um, and then I finally decided to go to law school at a very advanced age that we don't need to mention. Um, but it, while I was at Georgia State Law School, I met Mary Radford, um, who, as some of you may know, is the guru of estate planning and trusts and so forth in Georgia. Um, and she suggested that I meet Adam and Craig. And it's been, it was a fortuitous meeting, and I'm happy to be here. So what, at Gaslowitz Frankel, we talk about all of our time. We deal with the disputes. What happens when the state planning and trust administration and family wealth issues go bad? And 
sometimes we like to talk about and help people how you can avoid having to hire us. So I'll tell my my 13-year-old at the time son's joke, listen to what we say and you can avoid some disputes, but if you don't, listen to how to get in touch with us at the end of the show. So with that, Adam, why don't you start us off? Well, why don't we just, why don't we just start with um, both of you telling us what the biggest problems you're seeing in our practice. Okay, well, one, one of the things that, that I've noticed, and I joined the firm a year ago, is there are often disputes with how families have set up their uh, planning after a matriarch or patriarch dies. Uh, Businesses are left to children. uh, One or more children are put in charge of dealing with with assets or estates. And and often that is certainly what what the late uh, parent in many cases intended, but uh, those uh, parties may not be entirely capable of managing the assets, of uh, properly and faithfully uh, distributing and managing the, the estate. So uh, we're seeing a lot of issues like that, particularly uh, in, with respect to businesses that were started by one generation and, and have been passed to another. And the other generation often uh, has uh, one or more uh, folks who are not capable of managing it or there's power struggles within those uh, Generations. And let's jump in. 80% of all businesses in the United States, the, the money, are from small businesses. So we're going to see, as, as wealthy Americans, hopefully, uh, lots of transitions of businesses. Millie, what kind of problems are you seeing? I see problems um, a lot with elderly parents, um, both before they pass away and then afterwards. First, um, when they're still alive, but maybe needing a little bit of assistance, we're seeing lots of times where um, children, and we saw some might have blended families, so it might be stepchildren, um, taking advantage, uh, maybe with the goal of trying to preserve what they consider to be their inheritance, while it is actually still mom's money. Um, it's not your inheritance yet until mom passes away. But um, there seems to be a focus on that, uh, taking advantage through powers of attorney. Um, a lot of times elderly folks are vulnerable because they live alone. Their children are in faraway states. Um, people are living longer. They have greater assets. So there are a lot of vulnerabilities there. Um, after folks pass away, the elderly parents die, um, there are a lot of problems that we see with administering estates. Um, the administrators, who may be family members, again, want to seem to carve out their own inheritance and maybe take it away from siblings. Um, and that's very often how disputes arise. And, and let's remember that in Georgia, as it is in most states, but particularly Georgia, the person giving the wealth has the right to do whatever they want to do with it. They can give it away. There is no right of inheritance. But a problem I'm seeing, and Adam, you may be seeing this too, is a lot of the estate plans themselves are focused so much on the technical tax issues that we're not seeing a lot of focus by the grantor, by the person who's leaving their wealth, on how it's actually going to work. That's that's been historically the case, particularly when uh, estate tax planning was more important, and that tended to drive the planning. So a lot of trusts and a lot of partnerships were set up with the goal of reducing estate taxes when somebody died and less focused on how that entity, that partnership or that trust was going to function after the person died. Uh, that is becoming less and less of an issue now that the estate tax 
uh, exemption is up to uh, almost five and a half million dollars per person. So, you know, effectively almost $11 million. So a lot more attention is starting to be placed on, on how we structure estates for the benefit of the family and the succeeding generations as opposed to just worrying about taxes. And, and let's talk about that for our listeners. When you're looking at your estate plan, particularly ones that you've had in place for a while, start focusing on really tax issues. And if you're not focusing on it or don't understand, ask your planner. But there used to be a real push to have the values go very low so you could avoid an estate tax. But then you're going to be hit with a huge capital gain upon sale. So now we should be thinking and talking to our financial advisors about how you can um, maximize values and help that out. And it will change the plan because you have to own it or control it at death. So that will change some plans. I want to jump back to where Robert started, though. So we've got business transition problems where we're not really planning, so to speak, well for that transition. Tell me some things that we can talk about or think about and advise our listeners to help with the uh, transition. Well, it, it seems to me from the cases I've seen that it may well be appropriate in some situations to consider whether there ought to be an independent, knowledgeable person involved in running a family business that is left to, uh, you know, let's say some children. Um, the, the children may or may not have grown up in the business. They may or may not understand how it works. And it may be appropriate to have someone independently involved, particularly if the business is supposed to be managed in a way that's ultimately for the benefit of some income beneficiaries or, or others down the road who are to uh, get involved in, in the business. Uh, another aspect of this I know you're dealing with in particular, Craig, is the question of whether there should be diversification. If the entire family's assets are tied up in real estate or in a single business, you know, there, there are some interesting questions I know we're facing with respect to whether the fiduciary who is in charge of that needs to consider diversification, which going back to my practice area is, is one of the principal things that a competent financial fiduciary needs to keep in mind. But it's obviously hard to diversify when the bulk of the family's assets are tied up in a, a single asset, like a business. Right. And so what you're saying is think about it in advance. A lot of things that mom or dad did that may or may not have been great when they were building the business the next generation either might not be able to do or perhaps need to think about other people like their siblings who may not be in the business. You are listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your host today, Adam Gasowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gasowitz Frankel. And we're talking to our newest partners, Millie Bombush and Robert Port, about how to avoid family disputes regarding inheritances and wealth. One issue you just mentioned is using a outsider or a professional. And it's going to be a very leading question, but I'm a lawyer. Is when is the right time to be choosing that kind of person? The day before you die or maybe a little earlier? Talk about leading. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll step into that. I, I think long before you uh, are, are on your deathbed, you need to have someone involved who you trust, who knows your business, who knows your family, and, and frankly has sensitivity to 
you know, either if it's a if it's a business issue or if you have an estate that's mostly made up of investable assets, stocks and bonds, someone who is competent and capable of dealing with those type of assets. Um, you know, and many times those relationships or the folks chosen are someone who, uh, you know, doesn't really have a deep understanding of those things and, and they should not do on-the-job learning with somebody's uh, inheritance. Yeah, but a lot of times what you have are, are family members who work in the business. You know, dad started the business, one child or another may work in that business for many years, and after years of doing that, that child assumes that they're going to be taking over. The other children are often out of the business or, or less involved in that business. And that and tends to create a lot of tension in the family, particularly when that patriarch dies. Um, how do you handle those sorts of situations? How do, you, how do you have the family sit down and have the kind of discussions in advance that allows them to either pass the business off to one side of the family and pass other assets to another side or to, to handle it in some way that doesn't end up in conflict? Well, like, like a lot of things we do, Adam, we can give folks our best advice, but what they do with it afterwards is up to them. And we all know plenty of situations where uh, even if someone had been told or there was a suggestion made, you know, you really ought to have somebody independent do this rather than your, your daughter, your son, or your brother-in-law who happens to be in the insurance business, um, that's not likely to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, there will be um, – there's emotional issues, there's family issues, there's all the tension there. So, you know, again, if folks have good advisors, attorneys, uh, tax planners, uh, state planners, um, CPAs, they can get that advice. But whether or not they act on it, you know, is obviously be them, uh, up to them. We can't force them to, to do what uh, we think may be in their best interest. Yeah. So no. it's a lot like, like voting in South Georgia in the years gone by, vote early and vote often. <laughs> what we need to tell our listeners is it's hard to talk about it, but let's talk about it. And Millie, you were about to talk, but let's talk about some things you should talk about. We know one thing is that, that we see a lot of is that the, the new child president of the company tends to want to have the same salary and perks as the patriarch or matriarch who built the business. And sometimes, and, and when I say sometimes, I mean always, the siblings resent that and say that was okay for dad, but it wasn't, it's not okay for you, brother or sister. Those are topics we obviously should talk about early on. Millie, what are some other topics and things we should talk about early on to at least identify the problems and potentially talk about solutions? Well, I, I think that's part of it. And there has to be, I think, an open family discussion about what the role is and what the compensation is for members of the family who are involved in the business and members who are not involved in the business. Just because you're not involved, some family members still think, well, it's, you know, it's my inheritance. I need a share of this. I should have, I have a large ownership percentage. I need to be compensated somehow. And yet they're not doing anything. They're not interested in doing anything. They have no talent for business, but they still want some financial compensation. But, but they've still inherited so, a portion of the business and they still expect to get their share. Right. Unfortunately, the people who are working in the business, their siblings, often feel differently about that. Yes. And, and remember that, that, and we face this all the time, a company is different than a trust. And there's a recent case, Rollins versus Rollins, that highlights this. But when you own a business, you're going to have shareholders and directors. And when mom and dad owned the business and they were the sole shareholders, the sole directors, the sole employees, the sole people who are going to make profit, the decisions are made a lot more like 
a family makes a budget decision. But once you switch, one of the things I think we need to talk about is how does a business manage when you're gone? So what's some advice we can give to families on that transition, ways they can figure out how they can manage this business and still have it be successful for the company? What should we be talking about? I think Millie hit on the right start, which is communication among the family members. Sitting down with the family and saying, things are going to transition and let's talk about how best to do that so we don't create conflict. Uh, discussing the realities of the fact that one child may work in the business and the others don't, and how they'll feel about it with regard to each other is a good start. Uh, discussing whether it's a good idea to leave the business to some children and not others, and to and to work out with the children a, a fair way of dividing up family assets so that other children get Talk about that. You're going to leave. You only got the family business, and you're going to leave, and you're going to say some should not be involved. How do you do that and make it work where the only assets the family business? Well, one way to do it is through insurance. Um, you can purchase insurance that pays off when, uh, when the business transitions. So if you know, father dies, life insurance on his life will go to one child, whereas the business will go to another. It's a, a partial solution. It's hard to get the numbers right. Business values change all the time. And so getting the insurance to match up with the business may be difficult. But it's at least uh, one way of, of passing other assets on to children when there really aren't other assets. You know, another thing people need to talk about occasionally is uh, whether the business is worth passing on or whether that business should be sold and cash should be given to both. Or whether the business should be sold to one child um, using part of their inheritance with the uh, remaining assets going to the other. So if you've got two children, one child can buy the half of the business from the other child. The other child gets cash or a note, and the child buying the business has the business without another looking over their shoulders. And, and let me add a tax nerd question. I'm actually not the tax guy. Adam is. But a lot of entities, not just the family businesses, were set up as limited or family-limited partnerships to try to do estate tax planning. And they weren't thinking about a lot of management. But now that we are having a different tax environment, it might make a lot of sense to talk to your advisors about changing that structure. Because if you have a family limited partnership or something like that and you pass, <coughs> you're going to need to keep that partnership running for a while in order to satisfy some tax concerns. Whereas if you change the structure, you might not. We've also had uh, come across issues where there are problems when family businesses are held as assets in trusts. So then you have the, number one, the governance of the family business, but number two, the overlay of what the trustee's role is. And why is that a problem? Uh, because sometimes they can be different. Trustees have duties to all the beneficiaries of the trust to make disclosures, um, to provide accountings. But how much detail do they have to provide about the accounting of the individual business that's held within the trust? And, and often we've seen trustees appoint themselves as officers of the company. So they've got, they're wearing multiple hats and yes. have conflicting roles. And, and Georgia law says you can, ha you can wear several hats. But the problem is when you're wearing the hat, you have to act the right way. So a trustee has duties that are different to all the beneficiaries that may be different than the officer's duties to the company where it may be making money. Um, we're talking a lot about ways we can change businesses, and we've talked about the people. How do we go about choosing who should be the trustee or perhaps the outside business person? Who are the right people we should be using as fiduciaries? Because this is a difficult problem, and a lot of, of our clients that we see use the default provision. Dad says, I want to use my children because their feelings will be hurt. Or I'm going to do all of my children so I don't hurt 
one of the children's feelings. What are some advice that we can give to our listeners that says that may not always be the best answer? Well, co-fiduciaries or co-executors under a will, uh, very often it might work, but it might not. And very often a parent who has two children will appoint the two children as co-fiduciaries. They disagree. In Georgia, um, executors have to act unanimously. And so then there's a problem. There's no impasse provision. There's no way to get around it. And the next thing you know, they're calling us and we're all in court because they can't agree. And it might be over something like personal property, not over, you know, $500,000 investments. And as we well know, courts really frown on co-executors. Yes, they do. And, and personal property deserves attention. People's emotions regarding personal property sometimes are more important than the dollars. We've had estates that were worth millions and millions of dollars but we fought for two years over the original cookbooks that it, people get in touch and they deal with these issues. And family members I have found always um, the relationships between family members goes back to childhood. Yes, it So does. sometimes it's hard. So, And not a lot of people realize that this is a unanimous vote unless you change it. Are there ways to change that so that you can fix what you refer to as the impasse problem? Well, you, you can – Number one, not appoint co-fiduciaries. Um, number two, you could appoint three and say, under your will, do you want a majority, perhaps? Um, or you could look to a corporate or professional fiduciary and just take it out of the family realm altogether. A lot of people say that the, the corporate fiduciaries are too expensive. But, Robert, I think I've heard you say that in the end that actually solves the problems and you, and you actually do better. Is that right? Yeah, I, I believe, and again, my, my point of view comes from the investing world. A lot of people are really reticent to pay a competent advisor, uh, myself included. But I've, I've concluded that it is a form of insurance to avoid a lot of the issues we're talking about and avoid having to pay attorneys like us lots of money to disentangle disputes that folks may get into. So, you know, it is the, if you will, the cost of doing business or the cost of hopefully putting your business or your assets or your estate in a place that has a better probability, and we're just talking about probabilities, a better probability of, of either continuing or going forward as, as, um, as intended and avoiding uh, spending lots of times in conference rooms with attorneys. And, and that would be true even if you believe that one of your sons is perfectly capable of managing the estate and, and the affairs of the business and is the person you trust to do it. Absolutely. But having someone else, so we've talked about, you used the word a form of insurance, and I like that. So when you talk about impasse resolution by having a majority vote perhaps, that's a form of insurance. And when we talk about having a fiduciary who is a professional, that's a form of insurance, not only against disputes, but it's also a form of insurance about what I call temptation. When money is there and you're having a difficult time in your life, we are all human beings. And so avoiding the temptation or the appearance that you're doing something wrong sometimes goes a long way. Are there other ways we can protect? And I'll, I'll mention one, but providing information seems to be something we fight a lot about. Is that a way we could use to protect families in some ways? Absolutely. Um, not only providing information during the uh, administration of a trust and of an estate, but even beforehand, when you've got an elderly parent who names one or two children as powers of attorney, um, there should be transparency provisions there. You know, the power of attorney should provide that 
the agent who is appointed maybe notifies the other siblings the first time he or she takes any action under the power of attorney. Are y'all seeing that when the powers of attorney that you're seeing, are you seeing powers of attorney that have either accounting or disclosure requirements? Very few of them, but I think we recommend that most of them should. Yeah, um, we're, seeing, we're seeing a lot of abuse. I think, Millie, you're seeing as, as much of it as any of us at the office. A lot of abuse with powers of attorney, with, with estate planning documents that have been put in place to deal with people as they get older. And once those documents are actually um, uh, put in, in service, they get abused. And, yes. but, the, but the solutions for powers of attorney are similar to solutions for business management and similar to solutions for trust. So, for example, with business management, you can have uh, majority control. We can have professionals coming in, but we can have disclosures. And is that something we should be talking about when we set up these businesses or look at our documents when our listeners say, gosh, I've got a family limited partnership or I've got a trust? What kind of disclosures should I have? Well, I don't think disclosure is enough. I think disclosure, disclosure, disclosure is really what we need um, because we see just too much of it. And when um, the person who is not in charge of the information doesn't get the information, that instantly creates suspicion. So by the time you get the information, you're already looking at it through some kind of jaded eyes, and you're, you're not inclined to even believe the numbers that are right in front of you. So disclosure early and disclosure often, I think, would be helpful in both families and family businesses and estates and trusts. Um, what about the uh, disputes that arise when people become incompetent? We, we've seen a lot of, of disputes that arise when there are powers of attorney in place. They're being used maybe properly, maybe not, but there's distrust among the other family members. A lot of that distrust obviously could be avoided with uh, some disclosure, but then you see people filing for guardianships to join avo to void the um, effectiveness of the powers of attorney. Uh, have you thought about ways that we can solve some of those problems? Because they seem to be more and more frequent lately. They are. We're seeing a lot of um, guardianships in Georgia, which um, if, if you go to the court and apply for guardianship, then you are in charge of the elderly person's health care. A conservator is in charge of the finances. Um, and it's really a matter very often of just family trust. Um, it's the person taking advantage sometimes is an opportunist, not necessarily a predator, but just taking advantage of an opportunity. And as Craig said earlier, you know, it, it may be a child who is um, at a point in life having some financial difficulty, moves back in with mom, next thing you know is taking over mom's credit cards and um, nobody else knows what's going on with mom. And it's a problem. Right. A, a very easy way some of that can be cured is most banks and financial institutions will be agreeable to sending copies of statements to others. Uh, you know, for example, I've set my own folks up with a financial advisor, and they get copies of their monthly statements, and I get copies as well, so I can monitor what he's doing and pick up uh, long before uh, anything untoward uh, might happen uh, exactly what's going on. So disclose, disclose, disclose. Right. You're listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel, of the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking to our newest partners, Robert Port and Millie Bombush, about how to avoid family disputes regarding inheritance and wealth. When we, when we talk about disclosure, let's add one little point and talk about it. Disclosure, when you say, I think giving statements to all family members, particularly for the major assets, is important, but you also have to empower that person. So if you're using a power of attorney, 
you need to say if there's a problem, you have a, a mechanism to solve it. Because a normal power of attorney does not authorize anybody but the agent or the person who gave the power to enforce it. Just, just one point, too, about banks. While it would be great if banks would agree to send statements to other people, um, and that's helpful, we found that very often banks require their own power of attorney forms to be filled out. So if you go to an attorney's office and you get a power of attorney, not all banks will accept that. And you may have to just make sure that whatever bank you're, you're, or account you're wanting to control that particular bank doesn't require its own form to be filled out. And, and one solution for that, by the way, is when you're starting to age, we talked about people becoming incompetent and needing guardians or conservators. But that's complete incompetence. What we're seeing, I think, is a lot more of what I would refer to as diminished capacity and just normal aging. So as you're doing that, one thing to do is to go to the banks that your elderly parent already banks at and go ahead and fill out their forms. And many of them will require the form every five years. Another well, problem. Know, one other thing that trips people up is uh, lawyers typically, particularly in Georgia, uh, are allowed to avoid the obligation that the law requires of accounting to the court, of, of doing an inventory and of accounting to the court when you probate a will. So a lot of lawyers typically will put provisions in the will that avoid that obligation. Uh, what happens is that the fiduciaries then think that not only don't they have to account to the court, they don't have to account to anybody, and that, that tends to set up a, a conflict between the child or person managing the estate and the remaining beneficiaries of that estate. It tends to translate into all the other behaviors of the fiduciary. So, so what the, the word for, for our listeners is, if you waive an accounting to the court, that's okay, but be very clear in the document and to your fiduciaries, you still want them to maintain the books and you still want them to provide an annual accounting. I always recommend that you actually put in the document, you must use a computer-based accounting program, whether it's Quicken or something else, and actually use it. And the I get some pushback, and they say, well, I don't know how to use it. And with humor, I say, if you can't use Quicken, you probably shouldn't be managing the estate. Um, you mentioned something when we talk about going to banks, though. What is very common solution to parents is going to the bank and becoming a joint joint on their account so that you can write checks for convenience. Is that a good idea? N-O. <laughs> <laughs> Why and that not? Sounds no, because what a joint account means is that when one owner dies, the entire balance of the account goes to the other owner. Very often that's not what mom and dad had in mind. They're putting a child on there for convenience to help them, but they want their assets you know, spread, as the will says, equally among all of their children. And it passes to the uh, joint account holder automatically um, yes. at the moment of death. So yes. what's the solution? The solution is to make sure it's a POA account opened or make sure... Th uh, what does POA I'm mean? I'm sorry, power of attorney. I apologize. And or, or make sure that the, um, the bank understands this is not a joint account with right of survivorship. There are other ways that accounts can be set up at different banks. You've got to tell so the banks. The banks default yes. to power of attorney accounts. Right. And I want to highlight that I mean, I'm sorry. No, they default they, to joint accounts. Yes. Right. And let's highlight where this becomes a problem. It becomes a problem a lot of times in brokerage accounts, which are where lots of money end up being for families, whether they be 401ks or other retirement accounts. And weirdly enough, it goes back to bank accounts because as our parents age, they sell assets fill-in-the-blank houses, and the assets go into the brokerage account or go into uh, you know, a, a Roth IRA or go into a savings or regular bank account while they're trying to figure out what happens. So those are where the big dollars go. 
Do we have similar problems on joint accounts and joint ownership with other property like houses or brokerage accounts? We do. We've just seen this in a case we had recently where a couple um, owned a house jointly in Atlanta. The husband and wife assumed that it was owned jointly with rider survivorship, and it was not. So the wife's share then ended up in her estate, which has been hotly disputed. Um, had it been titled pr- correctly, as they thought they had intended to do, uh, jointly with right of survivorship, the ownership would have passed automatically to the husband without uh, having to go through probate. So and what's our um, advice to listeners? Is to pay attention to how your assets are titled and, and make sure you it, they're titled the way that you intend. Make sure you understand what's going to happen after your death. Now, the case you're talking about had children from a previous marriage. That was where the dispute came in. Yes, And I I was going to say on the brokerage area, if you have a joint account with a child and a parent, either one can direct investments in the account. And the brokerage firm generally, the broker is, is in a position where they may or may not understand the intentions of the account. You may have a young person wanting to direct an account in a very aggressive, risky way, when in fact the account should have been managed in a more uh, conservative way. And it it can potentially put a brokerage firm and a broker in a very difficult position because they're both on the account and the management directions being given may or may not be what was ultimately intended, but on the face of it, to the, to the broker, either party can manage the account. Is, is one of the solutions that we should start telling our clients and our listeners, when you have your brokerage statements and you go and you do your designations, go to your estate planner or your financial planner and say, show them the documents. I look at documents and I say to my clients, what did you think you did? And I look at the document, and whatever it is they thought they did isn't what they did. So it was one of the ways that we can suggest to our listeners is when you think you've done it right on the joint accounts and all of that, go back. Spend another 15 minutes with your accountant or with your financial planner or your estate planner and say, have I done it right? Is that a good idea? Absolutely, because those <laughs> in the brokerage industry they call those account opening documents. In the in the bank business, um, you know, there's there's different account opening forms, and those are the uh, at least administrative directions to the institution as to how that account is managed to the extent there's any supervision of of the account by the institution. That is what they will look to, no matter what private discussions may have been had with your banker or with your investment advisor. You know, one of the things that's become a big part of our practice is, is advising planners and, and bank fiduciaries about what might go wrong. So in, instead of just having a planner do a plan and taking the, uh, the client's uh, input about what they should do, they'll call us in and they'll have us look at the plan and, and talk to the family about what they're actually trying to accomplish and what their family dynamics look like. And then talk to them about what what conflicts, what problems may arise in the future based on what they're trying to do so that we can maybe figure out a different way to uh, accomplish their goal without unanticipated consequences. And that's, you know, that kind of foresight, I think, is kind of useful in, in predicting what problems may have. A lot of these problems are not hard to spot if you just know what you're looking for. And family dynamics usually play a pretty big role in that. And, and that, I, goes I, to, that goes to something I raised before. I used the, the phrase uh, insurance with respect to... Um, 
uh, paying for a fiduciary. The other aspect of that is is what you were talking about, Adam, which I view as risk management. You know, many people get into relationships and think everything's going to be wonderful. It's always going to work out. It's going to be great. Part of I think any professional's job, and particularly attorneys, because we deal with the issues that go bad, is to identify the the risks and understand where things can go wrong. And to the extent we have any crystal ball, which is very difficult, but to try and figure out potential problems down the road so we can head them off if at all possible. But, but a lot of things are not hard to predict. I mean, there are certain patterns of behavior that we see over and over again. We've handled, what, 4,000 estate disputes in our practice over the years, and, and there are certain patterns that repeat themselves. If you describe a particular family dynamic, you, you can tell with, with some degree of certainty what's likely to play out if you, if you pass assets a certain way or if you leave control a certain way. And there are ways to avoid a lot of those things. And, and I that's, think that's why one needs to visit with competent professionals who have <laughs> seen those dynamics and can anticipate what, what issues they have. There you go. Shameless plug, right? <laughs> when we talk about family dynamics, though, one thing we fail to consider is the family dynamics that you're thinking about now, which you should share with your planner, aren't necessarily the family dynamics we're going to see later because we're going to be talking about children who may or may not progress the way we think they're going to. And, and I, I, advise, I talk to planners all the time, and we're going to deal with the aging, surviving parent. So when we do reciprocal wills where you say mom's will and dad's will are identical, the truth is they're identical for now, but really it's the first to die will. And the second person may change it as they remarry, as they age, as they have different caregivers. So we often tell planners even if you have great faith in your family and they're very good decision makers and they're very mature, you still should put into your documents things that protect the aging parent from potential problems. So what are some of those protections that we've talked about that people can use to try to protect against what happens later after they die? Well, I, I don't know if this is a protection to put in place, but as you were asking your question, it occurred to me that, that I've seen a number of situations where the heirs believe there was a lot more money or a lot more assets. And when the, the will, uh, uh, you know, there's the inventory of the property and one figures out actually what's in the estate, there's a lot of acrimony because they believe, you know, stepmom took something or, you know, one sibling or another took something. And, and or dad said there'd be plenty of money we wouldn't have to worry. Exactly, right? exactly. So that goes back to disclose, disclose, disclose. Exactly. And, and it's not directly responsive to your question, but in terms of what, what folks can do, I think to the extent you know, there's always the, the question about how much you want to share with your sibling, your, your children about your assets, but to the extent that they can have some sense of what's really there as opposed to what they might be hoping is there, I, I, I think that may go a long way to helping resolve some, some unanticipated issues. And you could do third parties. You can say, you know, for my kids, I'm going to let an uncle see the numbers if you're afraid the kids are seeing them or say they'll see it at an older age. I might suggest one other area that we see trust being used primarily as tax vehicles and following a lot of tax rules for estate planning. And I might suggest that we start looking at trust in the more traditional sense to try to create a trustworthy place 
to handle things. So let's talk about what happens with money after the surviving spouse dies that says, you know, it's okay for the money to go to the surviving spouse, but afterwards I wanted to go to the children from this union or partially or to a certain charity as opposed sometimes to just leaving it up to the surviving spouse who may succumb to pressures by individual children or by predators or caregivers. And I think we're seeing huge numbers of caregivers taking advantage of the elderly who truthfully are thankful to the caregivers. Is there anything else like that that we can talk about that might help in protecting aging adults in their planning? Well, I, I, I still keep coming back to, uh, to communication among the families. I mean, we talk about this and we, and we say it's hard, but we need to do it anyway. We really need to make a push, not just um, uh, us as litigators, but, but planning attorneys, um, bank trust officers, whoever's doing the, the work with the families, to, to sit them down and discuss this stuff. And it's often very hard for parents to talk about their assets with their kids, but you know, there's not a better time to do it than while you're alive. It becomes very difficult afterwards. And, and having those discussions now uh, in, in a safe environment, maybe with other professionals involved, if, if you have difficulty explaining those things to your kids, is the way to do it. You can sit down with your attorney and your financial advisor or a family psychologist if that's the kind of family So, you so you're advising that use your professional to help you have that conversation if you're not yes. able to do it on yes, your own. Yes, most professionals would be happy to sit down with, with not just you, but you and your family and help explain the family plan, the, the, the succession plan, the dynamics of the family's assets and how, how the family uh, expects those to be handled and managed in the future. And let me add one other thing on that subject. Most parents, certainly my parents, think that everything has to be fair. And, and I think that's great. But how you define fairness is very interesting. All of our children will be different and they'll go off in life and do different things and have different needs. So I think when we're sitting in the planning process, we should think about those things. So, for example, if there's been, and we see this all the time, a family vacation home where the family says, gosh, we've loved it, and they give the family vacation home to the three kids, several of the kids may not share those views, or if they share the views that this is the greatest place to be, don't live near there, or can't afford it. So when we start talking about assets, whether they be businesses or family homes we should talk about the reality of the management because that's where we're seeing problems is the management after they die or after they age. And another classic scenario is a family that has two children. One's a successful, uh, very wealthy cardiologist. The other is a starving artist, and the family leaves more money to the starving artist because they think that's fair for him or her because the other one doesn't need it as much. And it turns out that after parents die, money is almost a proxy for love and mom didn't love me enough and if the parents don't discuss this ahead of time then the the child who didn't get as much um, is left feeling hurt and that only exacerbates any disputes that go on in the administration of the estate. Whereas often if you discuss it in advance you know you my doctor's son I'm going to leave a little less to my daughter's going to get a little more because she's a poor starving artist everybody okay with that and everybody will be okay with that. They just don't like surprises. Nobody likes surprises. So I, don't want to, so I don't want to say this out loud, but my wife is actually right, <laughs> that if you talk about things in advance, it, it avoids problems. In, in your case, she's right, yes. Interesting. Okay, well, <laughs> with that note and a uh, shout-out to my wife, uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters today, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz-Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. 
And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. We've talked today about how to avoid family disputes involving inheritances and wealth. We do have an ebook on the subject that talks about many of the tips that we do, and we've been more than happy to talk to you about those. If you need to contact us, please do. Thank you so much to our newest partners, Millie Bombush and Robert Port. We look forward to being able to assist you in any family disputes you may have regarding your inheritance or your wealth. And please remember to join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. 